Well, good morning, 11 o'clock service, Harvest Grand Haven. It's good to see you on a nice summer June morning. I uh, know by looking at you that you have a question. You either have one of two questions. One, you're wondering who I am. And if you know who I am, you're wondering why I'm the guy up here this morning. I can answer both quickly. My name is Tim Penning, and I'm one of the elders here at Harvest. And I am preaching today because we have, as you saw referenced in the God at Work video, the Act Like Men conference going on. And a lot of our staff are up there this morning. So that leaves us with a bit of a skeleton crew. I'm happy to preach this morning to you. It's a privilege. I'm excited to do so. Um, I didn't stumble during the 9 o'clock, so I think you're in okay hands here. The, the message this morning is about the topic of foolishness. Foolishness. Now, we've been going, as you know, if you've been attending regularly, through a series of sermons about strongholds. Strongholds, things that can have a grip on your life and have you do things and think things and say things that God would not have us do. So in talking about foolishness and preparing for this, <clears throat> and, and by the way, that might be why they asked me to preach. Uh, it's foolishness. Let's get penning. Uh, I don't think so. But I did ask my wife in preparing for this message, honey, can you think of anything that I've done around the house that would be considered foolish? It may have been foolish to ask her this because after three or four minutes, when she was able to compose herself and stop laughing and wipe the tears of hilarity from her eyes, she said, I can only pick one? Well, she settled on the great mountain biking repair incident of 2009. We had been in the north woods of uh, Michigan on a vacation. I had been looking forward to it. It had been a rough couple of months at work, and I was so excited to be on vacation. And we're deep in the woods biking, and one of my pedals falls off. So I was frustrated, and I said, I don't even have tools. I'm just going to have to finger tighten it and get on our way. And my wife's talking to me as I'm fixing it, and I say, not now, honey. And I keep working on it, and then she breaks up laughing, and I say, not helpful and there's black flies all around me, and I'm sweaty, and finally I stand up and I look at my bike, and both pedals were in the upright position instead of like this. I thought for a minute, maybe this will work out well. I'll be like the guy who tried to invent super glue and got the post-it note. People will be riding around the Grand Haven on a bike going like this instead of like this, and people would say, hey, he got one of those pennings. That never happened. So. That's just one of many things I've done that are foolish. And the point is, we all do foolish things, right? We all do. There's another story about two of our pastors who went fishing. You see the picture of the boat up there. So Pastor Chris and Pastor Taylor decide to go fishing. And they go up north and they rent a boat and they go out on a lake and they start fishing and they're not catching anything. So they go to a different spot, same problem, not catching anything. Finally, they say, we're going to go way across the lake to this different spot, and they start fishing, and they're, they're reeling them in left and right. And very quickly, they catch their limit, and they're so excited. So Chris says to Taylor, you got to mark this spot. Taylor says, uh-huh. And so they, they bring the boat back, and they get to the dock, and Chris says to Taylor, did you mark our spot? Taylor said, yep, put a big red star right on the side of the boat, right where I was fishing. Chris looks at him and says, oh, Taylor, how do you know that next time we'll get the same boat? Now, if you're a fisherman, and if you don't get that, talk to someone who fishes. But the point there is sometimes we're quick to point to the foolishness in someone else. 
and we forget that we're being equally as foolish or worse. But what we want to do today is not tell stories about each other. And by the way, Chris and Taylor never went fishing. I just dropped their names into that story to make you listen, but uh, making a little light of them. The point today is to look at foolishness as a stronghold, not just the silly things that we all do now and now, but when does it have a grip on our life? What does the Bible say about foolishness? When is foolishness something really serious? And to do that, we're going to look at a very famous story in the Bible. And then we're going to look at the backstory, and then we're going to look at three quick prescriptions for how not to be foolish. So the story is that of Samson and Delilah. Turn in your Bibles to Judges 16. Samson and Delilah, you've probably all heard of it. The world has heard of this story of Samson and Delilah. In fact, you see on the screen a movie poster from 1984. There was also a movie made back in 1949 about Samson and Delilah. It's it's called a love story. It's really not a love story. Um, it's more about lust. And if you think about Samson, everybody's heard of him. What's one word that comes to mind about Samson? Strength. He was not strong in the way we would like to be strong. The story is not a story about strength. It's really a story about foolishness. So let's go there. Judges 16. One day, Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. I don't like how this story starts. How about you? Now, the Bible, writers of the Bible often will use words economically, but I think between those first two sentences, there should have been something, and he thought about it. He deliberated. He wondered if this was a good idea. No, he just, he sees and he does. That's a clue. Let's keep going. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. So you see here Samson's mighty display of strength. By the way, we're going to get to why the Philistines wanted to kill him, right? That's coming. But he shows mighty strength. But we also see a tension already in Samson's life. He's physically strong, but he's spiritually very weak, right? We see that in this prequel to the story. So now let's get to Samson and Delilah. Interesting how this chapter starts with that. So sometime later, after this incident with the prostitute and tearing down the city gates, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we might tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Samson falls for Delilah. She's a Philistine woman. This was not wise. The very fact that he would entertain any thoughts about associating with a Philistine woman shows his foolishness. We're going to learn why as we get into the story and the backstory. It was not wise for him to be part of some of the, the Philistines were at odds with Israel. Also, Samson was not just any Israelite known for his strength. 
He was the leader at the time. Tremendously foolish to be associated with this woman. And as we look in verse 6, Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. What would you think if you were dating someone and they asked you, hey, tell me how I can destroy you? Why are you asking that? Or maybe just a hearty no, or we're done here, it's over? She goes to him and says, how can I destroy you? And what does Samson do? Let's continue. Verse 7, Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, you have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. A quick comment. Different versions of the Bible, I'm reading from the New International Version, use different words. Notice how Delilah accuses Samson of making her look foolish. Who's being foolish in the story? Verse 11, it continues. Round two, he said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. So this is two times. Two times he tells her what she believes is the secret, and she sicks the Philistines on him. I've never had Philistines hiding in my room, but I would think twice, this isn't right. Are you getting a sense of the foolishness? Verse 13 then, Delilah said to Samson, all this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, now the third time, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with a pin. Again she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke from his sleep and pulled up the pin in the loom with the fabric. It's just astonishing, isn't it? Three times. Delilah says, Basically, how can I destroy you? And he tells her a lie, and she sicks the Philistines on him. This is just astonishing. The third one, he starts playing with fire, really, by mentioning his hair, getting a little closer to what will undo him. Tie me with seven thongs, tie me with new ropes, weave the seven braids. She complains that he's making a fool of her. She only believed him. Why would she not? By the third time, she she gets really frustrated, and look what she does next. But first, Samson thinks he's being wise, right? He thinks he's tricking, but he's falling. He's the one being foolish. It's like saying, how do you know next time we won't get the same boat? You think you see the foolishness in others while you're being foolish yourself. So she said to him, verse 15, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So she says to Samson, how can you love me when you don't tell me the truth? Did she love him? 
Did Samson catch on to that? No, he doesn't. So let's look at the end of the story. Verse 17, so he told her everything. The truth this time. He says, no razor has ever been used on my head because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's room. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. Now notice something important in this verse. He's now telling her the truth. But what he says is he's a Nazarite dedicated to God from his mother's room, womb. Samson knows the truth. He knows that he's dedicated by God for a purpose. He should know that that's the source of his strength. But he talks about his head being shaved. That's really a tragic part of this story. Verse 18, it continues. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more. He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned to him with silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Now he awakes from his sleep and he thought, I'll go out just like before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Now that's, that part is really tragic to me. He didn't know that the Lord had left him. He knew that he had been set apart by God. He tells her the source of his strength is his hair. It's not his hair. It's God. And in the end, he's, his strength has left him because the Lord had left him. So what happens? The Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Notice interesting parts of the story. He went to Gaza to see the prostitute. Now he goes down a slave. He was a slave to his own passions and his own sin. Now he's a slave to his enemy. He was spiritually blind. Now he's physically blind. He was physically strong and spiritually weak. Now he's weak in both regards. It did not end well because of his foolishness. Have you ever asked yourself or someone else, what were you thinking when you did this foolish thing? Or what was I thinking? That's what we can ask about Samson here. What was he thinking? I should have known better. What would have happened if Samson had just said to Delilah the first time when she asked about the source of his strength? What if he had just said, God is the source of my strength? He would not have gone into foolishness, tempting fate and ultimately falling. What would Delilah have done? She would have gone back to the Philistines and said, I got nothing. He says the source of his strength is God. But Samson doesn't do that. He doesn't acknowledge that and he doesn't live that way and he doesn't tell Delilah that. So all of this leads today to the big idea. The big idea, if you're taking notes, is two words. Foolishness forgets. There's a lot of things in the story that Samson forgot. But the story that I read, the famous story, that's really the fruits of foolishness. If you know in the Christian walk and in spiritual soul care, we talk about roots and fruits. The, the fruits are what you think and do as a result of your problem. But what are the roots of it? And we're going to look at the roots 
of Samson's foolishness and apply it to our own lives by backing up in your Bible. So if your Bibles are open, go back to Judges 13. We read from 16. And we can see five things that Samson forgot and that we might often forget in our own life. And the first one is forgetting who sees. Forgetting who sees. God sees. If you look at verse 1 of Judges 13, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. I told you that that's the context for the bigger story. Samson is a leader. He led Israel for 20 of those 40 years. God said to his parents, and you'll hear that in a minute, that he would begin the process of breaking free from the Philistines. But all of this mess happened because Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot that God sees everything. Samson forgot that God sees everything. If you read, I happen in in my personal devotions to be reading through the Bible, and if you read through Kings and Chronicles, those Old Testament stories, it's astonishing how often you hear the passage or read the passage, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And there's a couple of ways of thinking about that when you say God sees. First, he sees everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He knows everything that's going on. And it's foolish to think otherwise. The other is, in the eyes of the Lord, is the way he sees it, his perspective. We often are tempted to do things and say, well, it's not illegal, or my friends are doing it, or some worldly, earthly justification. But in the eyes of the Lord, it's evil, and therefore we shouldn't do it. And and forgetting that leads to foolishness. I would also say that the fact that God sees everything can be tremendously comforting. If you're in a good marriage, you have a good friendship, there's another person in your life that really knows you. Warts and all, as they say. They know your bad side as well as all the good thing. And you feel like you don't have to put up a front with them because they know it all anyway. And they love you anyway and they hang with you, and they're still your friend, and they speak truth to you, and they're for you, even though they know your flaws. That's what God is. It's important to remember that. If you believe that, don't forget that God sees, because it would be foolish. The second thing that we forget is forgetting who blesses. All blessings come from God. If you think of that old hymn, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's kind of what it's about here, right? Read in verse 2 with me from chapter 13. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. There's the part that Samson told Delilah. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name, but he said to me, you will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, 
And do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. So what you see here are a couple things. Samson himself was a blessing. We see that repeatedly in Scripture. A couple can't have a child. An angel comes, says you're going to have a, a child, and this will be their mission. We see that with Samson. So he was a blessing to his parents. He's also a blessing to Israel. As we've said, Israel was under the thumb of the Philistines. So Samson was a blessing to them, to the whole nation as its leader. He also received a blessing from God. That was the source of his strength. Samson's parents understood this. Samson forgot, and that's why we saw his foolishness. Let's think about us. Sometimes we have something good, and we forget who blessed us with it. We get into arrogance and pride, thinking it's from ourself, and that leads to foolish thinking and behavior. Sometimes we dwell on the negative aspects of our lives. We don't just forget who blesses, but that we're blessed. Even in difficult seasons of life, there are blessings. Salvation being the ultimate one, right? Knowledge of God, knowing that God knows you. If we dwell on the negative, that can lead to uh, a complaining spirit, bitterness, anger, and that leads to foolish thinking and behavior. So we can't forget who blesses. I would also say, and I can tell you this from personal experience, some of you know my story, trials in life are blessings. There's passages about that, songs about that. Maybe some of you have experienced that, but a trial, a difficult time in life can be a blessing if it leads you closer to God, if it reminds you of who God is, if it gives you a spiritual perspective. You saw a little of that in the God at Work video too, right? So don't forget who blesses and what blessings are. If you believe that God is the source of all blessings, don't forget that. That would be foolish. Number three, forgetting who gives wisdom. Who is the source of wisdom? It is not of ourselves, it is from God. Let's look at the passage in verse eight, Samson's father. It says, then Manoah prayed to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah. So what's going on here is that Samson's dad doesn't just take the blessing. We're going to have a boy and run. He says, how do we raise him? It doesn't come with a manual. A lot of parents have said that, right? I need God's help. We all should seek God's wisdom in everything we do in life. This is actually a good theme throughout Scripture. People seeking wisdom. If you look at Solomon, we'll hear from him later, often called the wisest man in the Bible. If Samson is known generally for being strong physically, Samson is known for wisdom. And if you look at 2 Chronicles 1 verse 10, give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people for who is able to govern this great people of yours? That is Solomon talking to God, asking for wisdom. We see this in the New Testament as well, in the book of James, who writes in 1 verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Old and New Testament, 
leaders of the faith ask God for wisdom. Forgetting the source of wisdom leads to folly. I can tell you, I am a college professor in my day job. Elder is not a full-time job. That's a volunteer thing, right? I know a lot of very smart people, and I can tell you what wisdom is not. Wisdom is not the same as knowledge. Wisdom is not just being smart, accumulating a lot of knowledge. I know a lot of professors who are wise as well, but apart from God, I can read what somebody's written or hear them speak, and I can shake my head to myself and say, that's just foolishness, right? Wisdom should come with age, but I can also tell you, I have students who are 19 and 20 who show tremendous wisdom. I know people in their 60s and 70s who continue to persist in a stronghold of foolishness. And the key difference is knowing that the source of wisdom is a spiritual thing. It comes from God. I'm part of an organization called Phi Kappa Phi. It's not like a fraternity that you see in the movies where people do bad things. It's an honor society for people who achieve a high GPA, and it's people from all different disciplines. And I like to read uh, their, their journal and, and learn from other people. But listen to this. Their motto is, may the love of learning rule mankind. Now, I don't think it's wrong to love learning, and to, maybe a lot of you are curious people and intellectuals, but that part about ruling mankind, I want Jesus Christ to rule mankind. And he does, and he will. And the wisdom that we want comes from him and not from any human studying that we can do. If you believe that wisdom comes from God, don't forget, that would be foolish. Number four, forgetting our mission. What is our mission in life? Again, look at verse 12 in chapter 13. So Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? Different versions of the Bible actually use the word mission here. And remember from verse 5, when Samson's father is uh, talking to the angel, they're told he will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So I don't know about you, but when I was born, there was not an angel that went to my parents and said, you're going to have a child, name him Tim, this will be his mission. It didn't come to them like that. My dad was a plumber, my mom was an immigrant, neither of them had much school. I become a college professor. They had no idea, right? Many of you probably find yourself where you are in life uh, without your parents being told by an angel of the Lord that this would be your mission. So what is our mission? What is our mission if it's not that clear? Maybe it's to be a good parent. Maybe it's wherever you work to be an ambassador of God, however you can. Yes, to both. But let's look at what the Bible says about mission. If you look at 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, this is Paul writing to the younger Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I like that part about take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Our mission, what we were called to is eternity. Lake Michigan's not far that way. If any of you are boaters, you know that you don't steer a boat, large or small, by looking five feet in front of the boat. You're going to go up and down and bob and weave on the waves and the currents and the wind. The way you pilot a boat is looking way down on the horizon, the other side of the lake or a compass point. And that's our mission is to have eternity in mind. 
Samson was called specifically to lead Israel against the Philistines. We were called to eternity. If we have accepted Christ Jesus and have been accepted into the kingdom, that is our mission. So whatever you do, whatever you do in life, have eternity in mind. How do you bring glory to God? How do you keep yourself on that path to eternity? That is your mission. And if you stay on mission, you avoid foolishness. The subject that I teach is public relations, and that often involves counseling executives of large organizations. And one of the things people talk about in business and in management is mission drift. People will come up with great ideas or new programs, and sooner or later, some wise person will say, well, that's really creative, and that's, that's neat, and congratulations, but what does that have to do with our mission? If we do that, we're, we're drifting from our core mission. And you see that leading to big, expensive mistakes in business. If we do that in our life, if we take our eyes off eternity and what really matters, we're prone to foolishness. So if you believe that, if you know your mission, if you believe you are called to God, by God, and for God, don't forget your mission. That would be foolish. Number five, forgetting our weaknesses. You see that with Samson, don't you? He is so confident of his strength until he loses it and he's surprised by it. He thought he was fooling Delilah and the Philistines. He was fooling himself. He was being foolish. He didn't know his own weakness. And there were several. What were Samson's weaknesses? Forgetting the things that we talked about. Thinking his strength was his own. He had anger, which in other stories, we can't read 14 and 15 between the two chapters are doing. Read that on your own. See what Samson did. He had an anger problem. He kind of had a thing for the ladies, right, that led him to unwise decisions. He didn't recognize his own weaknesses. We all have weaknesses. If you're a wise person, you recognize that. Nothing wrong with being weak. That just means we're human. None of us, until we get to our eternal destination, will be perfect. And we need to recognize that. And by the way, that is so liberating. It is so freeing. It helps us avoid foolishness just to say, yeah, I have a problem. Let's deal with it. Let's see what the Word of God says about that too. First of all, in our passage, verse 22, we are doomed to die, Manoah said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. So we should tremble before God, but we should also know that it is by his very will that we live and that he is for us. I love what Paul says about weakness in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. God is speaking with Paul. And it says in that passage, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. One of the wonderful things about being a Christian 
in the Christian walk is that we turn the world on its head all the time. Not we, but God does. By the way, the world thinks that we are foolish for meeting on a Sunday morning talking about this stuff. The things that I'm telling you are foolish, they will celebrate. And when it comes to weaknesses, the world wants to say, how ridiculous, they're, they're admitting to a weakness. Come on, be strong. Actually, admitting to weakness is strength because God's power can shine through. There are many times in the trials of my life, I didn't even know what to pray. And I just said, Lord, take it. And I stopped fighting. And I've talked to other people who've done the same thing. And they say, God just came through and filled that void. And what a relief. Admit the weakness. Accept the help. Lean on the Lord. If you deny that you have a weakness and you persist, you're just being foolish. You're persisting in foolishness. You're letting foolishness be a stronghold instead of letting God make you strong. If you know that you're weak, don't forget that. It's not a weakness to admit your weakness. It's foolish to not admit your weakness. So those are five roots of foolishness. The source of the problem. I can't stop there and say, have a good day. That's what causes foolishness. Let's, let's look at the word and go to another person in the Bible, not Samson, but Solomon, known for his wisdom. Turn to Proverbs 3, and we're going to look at verses 5, 6, and 7. And each verse will give us something powerful and helpful as a relief from weaknesses. So we had five roots of weakness, five roots of foolishness, and three things that are a relief from foolishness. Number one is humility in verse 5. It says there, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. How many of you know this verse? Read it before. It's certainly underlined in my Bible, right? It's very tempting to lean on my own understanding. Like I said, I'm a college professor. We tend to read a lot, study a lot. But I have learned, no, I need to trust in the Lord and not lean on my own understanding, and that requires some humility. There's a global public relations firm that does a survey every year on trust. It's called the Edelman Trust Barometer. And I'll just say quickly, right now, we are at a very low point across the whole world in people trusting government, business, education, the media, basically any institution. And yet you look at social media and people are very quick to proclaim what they think to be true. So we don't trust institutions, but we're quick to trust ourselves, right? People are not very humble. There is so much we don't understand. And there is much we think we understand, but we don't. One of the things that my faculty colleagues and I will say about young students, sophomore, by the way, it's the second level in college. It technically means wise fool. Like they know enough to be intelligent, but they, they, we say they don't know what they don't know. We're the same. We sometimes wonder why we're going through a tough season. We sometimes, why would God do this? We don't know what we don't know. And sometimes we won't know. We have to trust God. 
And sometimes we say, we just have to pray about it. We just have to trust. I don't like that word, just. I think that's the most important thing we can do. Trust God and be humble to do so. Secondly is to acknowledge. Verse 6 says, in all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Now, if you're using the English Standard Version or some versions of the Bible might say acknowledge. The New International Version says submit. And by acknowledging God, it means to submit to him. First, we have to give him credit for being who he is and everything that he has done. And secondly, we have to submit to his will. If given the choice between our desire and God's word and God's will, it is wise to choose the former. And it almost invariably leads to foolishness if you go by your will. So we have to be humble. These are all interrelated. We have to acknowledge or submit to God. And then third, verse 7, repent. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Notice how being wise in your own eyes and evil go together. Again, your own eyes. Our eyes are not the perspective of God. God sees everything and he has a different way of looking at things. The other thing I can say about repentance and all of these things really is it's not like a burden of having God, like God seeing everything, having God look over your shoulders. That was a comfort I said, right? Repentance is not like a guilty verdict and you walk meekly and you repent. Repentance is a gift. It is a tremendous opportunity. It is only because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross that we can even think about repenting. And when you repent, you are forgiven. You are set free from whatever the sin was and from foolishness. In closing, I want to give you one more verse that really is, for me, kind of the bottom line of foolishness. Psalm 14, verse 1. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's a common verse too. A lot of you might know it. It's in, in more than one psalm. And this is not about atheists. You can think, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's somebody who says, God does not exist. What's worse is when a believer says that in the minutes and moments of our life, when we're tempted, yeah, I want to do this. I know I shouldn't. I know it's evil in the sight of God, but I really want to do it. And in the moment, you just forget God. Foolishness forgets. A fool says in his heart, moment by moment, there is no God. I'm going to do it anyway. And so we need to end with two more things on your outline. If foolishness forgets, what should you remember? First of all, remember who God is. Don't just believe there is a God. Know who God is. He created you. He created everything in existence. He knows you. He knows your thoughts. He knows everything you're doing. He loves you anyway. He's for you. He knows what's best for you. He wants what's best for you. That's who God is. It's foolish to forget that. Remember that. And secondly, remember who you are. I went to a Christian high school and I was a cross-country runner. And I had a coach who would say to us on the bus as we were going to meets on the weekend. He was a great coach. Got us to run very well individually and as a team. He reminded us, your jerseys have the name of the school on the front. We're a Christian school. The word Christian is right across your chest. Remember who you are. In these meets, there would be all kinds of teams from all kinds of high schools. 
Kids can be cruel. Athletes are competitive. They would say things, wicked things, mean things, try to get in your head. What he was telling us is, you're a Christian. You're redeemed by Christ. Don't respond that way. Remember who you are. And, you know, I've thought of that my whole life, and you can too. If you're tempted to do something foolish, just say, that's not who I am. Remember who God is. Remember who you are. Don't be foolish. Enjoy the blessings of walking with God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the opportunity to worship you, for the word that you have given us that sets us apart from the world. You have set us apart from the world for eternity. Help us not to set ourselves apart from you. Help us to break down the stronghold of foolishness. Help us to be wise for our good and for your glory. Amen.